0: I'm so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be back. Here, let me pass these out. Thanks to Whitney for doing this at the last minute. This is uh, not exam week, but the last week of classes for me, so busy time. Um, Here, let me just divide them up like that. What I want to do over the next couple of weeks, So this this two part, these notes are for this week and next, what I want to just keep building on what we've been talking about, and here I want to talk about uh, our Reformation heritage, not, not even necessarily what's distinct to us, but what's, what's um, near the very heart of our love, right? And all with the view of, you know, instantiating for us what it means to be um, fully Catholic, right? To love the great tradition, to lean into the great tradition, to receive the faith once delivered, from the saint, once delivered uh, by the saints and um, the things of God. What I really want to get at here is what drives and what has at least driven historical Protestant evangelicalism. Mm. Love for Scripture, deep, deep, deep love for Scripture, but then set, and this is, this is where modern evangelicalism gets slippery sometimes and shaky, set in a theological matrix, right? Love of Scripture relative to, what are the theological connections with? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Son in Scripture. The spirit in Scripture to be fully scriptural in in the evangelical tradition has historically meant to be fully in the spirit. Can't have a doctrine of, of holy Scripture without a deep, robust doctrine of the Spirit of the Living God and who He is relative to Scripture as its divine author and ongoing dynamism in the life of the church. <laughs> and then, in a to set this in a in an ecclesial context always. So Scripture Scripture isn't without context, floating around and. God forbid, we're not taking scripture and pitting scripture against Holy Church, right? We're Not doing anything like that, but we're setting scripture in the context of the church as the church's book, right? So let's do that. Um, let's press in. Uh, the, the title is just Our Reformation Heritage, Holy Son, Holy Scripture, Holy Church. And I work out, first I'll work out um, relationship of the Son to scripture, the, the word incarnate to the word inscripturated or even the word pre-incarnate, right? The word pre-incarnate, the word to the word of scripture. And then we'll we'll press in uh, and and go on from there to the word relative to the spirit of the living God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use a lot of Luther, Calvin, so on and so forth, where they're representative. So it's not a theology of any of them, but where they're representative of this tradition. So let me start right in the top. The Word of God, who is the Son, and the Word of God that is Holy Scripture. What I want to do here is work out what's the nature of the relationship and what's the differentiation. Does that make sense? Word of God is predicated to the Son and Scripture. Deep relationship there, but not in the same way. Got to work that out. So I start um, here with a quote from Calvin. Holy men of old, he's talking about the patriarchs here, holy men of old knew God only by beholding him in the sun, only by beholding him in the sun, God has never manifested himself to men in any other way than through the Son. that is the sole wisdom of God the light of God, the life of God, the one who is truth. And here what we're getting at, and this right off the bat, this sounds odd sometimes to modern Christians, only knew God through the Son. The Son has eternally been the word of God in the bosom of the Father, the very self-expression of God. As God acts in creation and redemption, He acts in and through the Son. That has always been the case. There's one mediator between God and man. The world was made through and for this word. He didn't then go into semi-retirement until the New Testament, right? But we see the word all the way through as 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 the outgoing effulgence of God all the way through the Old Testament. The word that comes and is on the lips of the prophets, so on and so forth. We're talking about the incarnate, or the son, right? The eternal son with whom we always deal, who in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. But what we're getting at here is God doesn't have um, different agendas and plans. The, the logic of the Older Testament or the logic of the way God relates to the patriarchs isn't different, doesn't have a different agenda, purpose, or end than he does for us. Or else what we'd be talking about is <laughs> a God who's got personality dissociative disorder. right? That's what we'd be talking about. Kelvin's point is fantastic. God reveals Himself, the Triune God of the Gospel, through the Son, through the Son, and always has right with progressive specificity and clarity. We're not talking about um, you know Moses being the first Trinitarian theologian or anything like that, but the Word that Moses, with whom Moses has to do, is the Word. <laughs> the Word. This is bedrock for reformation, Reformational theology. It's just bedrock. The Triune God of the Gospel reveals Himself to us, and gives Himself to us. Right? Both of those they go hand in hand. So God's not revealing Himself um, as an object of our speculation, or you know, to, to prompt chin scratching or something like that. God reveals himself to us as he's giving himself to us in that act of of bringing us into his life and mission. That's where God is known. It's basic to reformational theology. The Triune God of the Gospel reveals himself to us, gives himself to us in and through the Son, through the Son, because the Son alone mediates God to us. Here, don't, don't hear reductionistic, you know, Son apart from Father and Spirit, but hear the fullness of the Triune God The God who is Trinity acts triunely all the time. Always, that's that's who he is and that's what he does. He acts triunely. Now there's specificity within the ministries of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The the Son is the the ministry, the the extension of the Father who, who, who mediates God to us and also in the Son because he himself is God. Right? One with the Father and the Spirit. So, you know, you think about John 10, for instance, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. I am the good shepherd. Right? I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. Right? Even more, they know me amidst all this cacophonous din of the world. All those competing voices, our own even. Right? They know me and they follow me. You, however, the big, the big takeaway there for him in this sense, and this is huge in Johannine theology, the mark of the true son and of true sons and daughters, the word abides in them and has place in them, right? Um, I am the good shepherd, I speak, right? In this context, what's happening is it's manifesting that the word actually doesn't abide in you, right? The word doesn't abide in you. But what he's doing through the son, in the Son is punctuating and making known the voice of the Father. I and the Father are one. That's the big takeaway of John 10. I and the Father are one. To hear me is to hear my Father. Not another voice, not a different voice, but the very voice of my Father. Basic to reformational theology. At the same time, this too is bedrock. When scripture speaks, God speaks. Scripture is not the static dead voice, but in the power of the Spirit, the living dynamic voice of God. When scripture speaks, God speaks. Luther would say something like, um, to hear the voice is normative Christianity. Normative. That, that's what it means to be a child of God, to hear the voice. The, the, now the big question is where? Where does God give Himself to be heard? Where does God speak? with the Belgic Confession, great continental reform tradition. The preached word is the word. (laughs) Same, the preached word is the word. You think how important that is. Luther once said, uh, when people are asking, what what happened, (laughs) What's, what's happened here? Why is Europe convulsing? He said, well, you know, Philip Melanchthon and Nicholas Almsdorf and I, we sat in the pubs in Wittenberg and swilled beer and the word did this. His point is we preach the word and God speaks, right? It's a movement, it's a deep movement of the preaching of the word, but rooted there, it's a deep, deep, deep conviction that scripture is word of God. And when scripture speaks, God speaks. That's just bedrock. And I give you this um, Book of Common Prayer, or the Catechism there, talks just like that. God speaks in the Bible. The Bible is God's word, word of God. Now, what I want to do for a few minutes is just play out the connections here and the distinctions. So we're not conflating or we're not um, setting things in opposition to one another. When the Reformation says, solus Christus, right? Christ alone. At the same time, reformational theology would say, "sola scriptura, scripture alone, right? Christ alone, scripture alone. These aren't mutually exclusive. So you want to be really careful. And this is a mistake that's often made. Solus Christus and Sola Scriptura are, are heard or perceived or practiced as sola, right? Sola or solo, I'm sorry, solo Scriptura. The Bible alone, um, as a stand in for the spirit of God, as a stand in for the church, right? Bible against church or and you wanna be real careful here, some neo-orthodox type of movements, Christ alone with a diminished view of Holy Scripture. Bad news, mm-hmm. both together. These are not mutually exclusive, they're not, they're not in competition, together, right? To have a high view of Scripture, an orthodox view of Scripture, is to have an orthodox view of Jesus Christ. To have a low view of Scripture diminishes and demeans and runs right in the face of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They go together. They're not the same. The Bible isn't God. We wanna work that out. But there's, there's no such thing as holding forth and exalting Jesus Christ to the diminished view of Scripture. It's to diminish the Lord. This begs a few questions. Let's talk about this. Um, what is the relationship? What do we wanna say about the relationship um, of the Son to Holy Scripture How are they different? We're talking categorically different, right? Um, Holy scripture is a book. It's the book, the Biblos, but it's a book. The word who will be incarnate, we're talking about the living God, right? Categorically different, categorically different. Scripture is not possessed of divine attributes like eternality. There was a time when scripture was not. We wouldn't say that about the word, right? Arius has, we wouldn't. And and make sure you get this too. There will be a time when scripture is not, it's sacramental and provisional. That's to speak scripturally about scripture. We won't in the the, the world without end, be doing studies on first Corinthians anymore. But the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. So you wanna make sure that we're not just reducing, whenever you hear word of God, in in contemporary evangelical tradition, what we tend to do, Word of God is Bible, period. Don't wanna talk like that, right? You wanna be real careful you don't do that. Jesus Christ is the Word here, the eternal, self-existent, almighty, living God. Right? Now, how do we wanna bring these together so that we can properly predicate Word of God to Jesus Christ and Holy Scripture? reformational theology would say this, God is known in Jesus Christ. God gives himself to be known in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's manifestation, not a provisional manifestation, um, not one that we could expect to be contradicted, right? And fullness here, don't think, don't think something like, um, God is exhausted in Jesus Christ, nothing like that we think that in Jesus Christ, we have true knowledge of God, that God will continue to open up forever. And we will eternally say, <gasps> but our <gasps> will never contradict who God has shown himself to be in Jesus Christ, only continue to deepen and expand, right? <clears throat> Jesus Christ is living word of God and God is known in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is known, reformationally speaking, in a spirit-vivified acquaintance with Holy Scripture. So we're not, we're not reading Jesus Christ off of trees. We're not reading Jesus Christ off of our belly button. We're not reading Jesus Christ off the face of culture, right? If God's holy, if, if we're talking about Holy Son, one of the implicates of holy means the standard of themselves. <laughs> Society is not the standard of God. That's just another way. When we do that, it's another way of the church saying, we don't think God's holy right? He's mundane in this way. God is known in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is known in an ongoing way, deepened, right? As, as we grow in love and faith and obedience to him in a spirit-vivified acquaintance with Holy Scripture. That is where we hear the voice, right? And Holy Scripture is Word of God. Jesus Christ is the lord and the lord of holy scripture i want to i want to press into that too what that means you might think like this this is a what what contextualizes the great commission right all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me says our lord now what he doesn't say is to the church oh that's exhausting you take it right it's not the great omission or the you know uh, something like that of the lord all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and now I've, I've encapsulated that in a, well, there's not a book yet. We gotta talk about that. We wanna take scripture as granted. Um, and I will exercise that merely through a book, and I'm going into semi-retirement. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Now go, I will be with you. Right, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a co missioning I will be with you. Teach everything that I have taught you. And as, as the world hears you, apostolic witness, the world hears me. As the world hears, just play that right into, apostolic witness. As the world hears holy scripture, the world hears me. As you hear and heed and love and receive holy scripture, you do that to me. Conversely, when you don't, you also do that to me, right? This is the way that our King exercises and manifests and an act is kingship holy son holy scripture word of God not identically not reductionistically you can't conflate but always together you guys want to say anything so far about that Yeah, I think what this gets at is the sacramental nature of Scripture. Scripture is scripture is sacramental, right? Scripture isn't a record of what God used to do when God was around and did stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, and was accessible. Scripture is living. Right. By the way, if if that were the case, then you know what the church would be. The church would be like the DuPage Historical Society. Yeah. That's what the church would be like. We'd we'd be we'd be protecting and perpetuating the memory of Jesus and doing things for the sake of Jesus. Kind of like Robert de Bruce, you bled with Wallace, now bleed with me, right? Jesus did these great things, now let's go um, proclaim him to the world. Scripture is sacramental, which means this is the spirit vivified vehicle in and through which God gives himself to us, right? God gives himself to us, but precisely because scripture is sacramental, it means that scripture is a means to an end and in the fullness of that, in the fullness of, um, when that end is manifest, Scripture serves its purpose. You can think a lot about that like you might Levitical law. God doesn't repudiate Levitical law on the coming of Jesus. All that which God loves and blesses, is gathered up in Jesus Christ and carried forward forever. Right? But precisely because it, because it does, the practice of that goes away. Does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's never, it's, you never want to think about um, when you hear that, that that's a diminished view of Scripture, or anything like that. That's the way Scripture would talk about itself. Scripture bears witness to the Word, and in the fullness now of that Word, Scripture has served its sacramental purpose, means to an end.
1: I, I think if, if, of all the points you made, perhaps that was the sharpest point on the dynamic between Jesus, the Word of God, and Scripture as the Word of God. Yeah. Um, could you play out Luther's? <coughs> Oh, no, I classic, didn't. Classic yeah. Luther thing. <laughs> I mean, get, get classic
0: Luther. Boy, if you ever, need, yeah, Luther. you ever need quotes, man, Dorothy Sayers, Luther, yeah. Chesterton, boy, they're yeah. endlessly good. Um, That's true. Good preaching
1: tip. There. <laughs> Luther <laughs>
0: says, if you want to find the babe, right, and this is Advent, see, Luther loves to talk about Jesus Christ like the babe because it brings out, right, yeah. how does God overcome sin, death, reconstitute the world, the babe. Is, is the babe the Lord? The babe doesn't grow up to be the Lord, the babe is the Lord, right? Um, Luther says, if you want to find the babe, go to the manger, right? If you want to hear the voice of God, God, God you know, Calvin likes to talk like this. Um, God's not a juggler. 16th century, you know, three shells. See if you can find it. Wh- which one's the coin under? That one? Nope. God's not a juggler. He says, if you want to hear me, you know where to find me. This is where i give myself. Right, doesn't mean God's bound there. It means God promises to give himself there, right? There's no guesswork involved. You wanna meet the Lord? Go to the table. <laughs> the Lord's at the table, right? Here's, here's where the Lord speaks. If you wanna hear the babe, if you wanna know the babe, if you wanna find the babe, go to the manger, go there. But his point is, when you get to the manger, make sure you don't do this. Take the babe, set the babe on the ground, take the manger and say, my lord and my god now can you do that can you can you, is scripture above and beyond making an idol of is there such a thing as bibliolatry might we say something like anytime you take a god a, a means a god-given means and make it an end in itself when it's, an, it's a means to another end you've denatured the thing mm-hmm. right you're mistreating it Take the Pharisees, John chapter five. Jesus says, you have your nose in the graphe, in the scriptures, in that book. You think you find life there? Good. Don't you know that that book bears witness to me? How is it that your relationship with the book makes it such that you miss me when the book bears witness to me? You've mishandled the book. Does that make sense? So Luther's, now, (laughs) luther loved scripture right i want to make real sure you're not hearing lovia scripture not at all scripture is the vehicle of the of the self-bestowal of god holy 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 scripture scripture's god intended end is our acquaintance with the living triune god of the gospel um if i can push in something i want to do now is i want to talk about um how scripture is necessary for knowing God. At the same time, I want to make sure that even in our thinking about scripture, punctuating where we've been, that we don't take scripture as granted. If you've ever read John Bear's Mystery of Christ, I think it's chapter two. He talks a lot about that. It's easy for us to do, right? We have scripture, scripture's always been. How did Abraham know God? <laughs> how did Noah know God? No. <laughs> how how have the patriarchs come to know God? What is the connection between how we come to know God relative to scripture? What's God doing? Does that make sense? Or will? I think it will. I'm going to use Calvin here because he's really good. Institutes, institutes book one, chapters six through 10, really good. He says the patriarchs did not have scripture, yet they knew God, the God who lives and speaks and acts the word. They knew God. After them, when inscripturation occurs, scripture is essential for us. Knowing God It's essential to the life of the church, right? We uh, not only love scripture, we need scripture. We need scripture. The word of God, one of the points he wants to make, word of God here, word of God who is God is necessarily prior to scripture in terms of chronology, before scripture was, the word was, And as prior to scripture, if you can talk like that in terms of hierarchy, so what we mean when we're working out the the relationship here, the Lord is the Lord of all things. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I exercise it through scripture, but I I don't delegate my lordship. I don't delegate my godhood. Scripture is not God, it's the word of God, not God in the way that Jesus Christ is word of God who is God. Scripture is prior in the sense That being the case, we can't equate or reduce word of God merely to scripture, but everything we want to say, preach, think, live after inscripturation must be tested and normed by word of God. That goes for Sunday sermons, that goes for everything I say, everything I want to think about culture, about my life, has to be tested and normed by word of God. And what's being got at here is the God who speaks Right? The God who has spoken prior to Scripture and who speaks in and through Scripture is the self-same God, right? Um, No multiple personalities. God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. If he did, we'd be toast. The God who has always spoken is always exactly like himself, which means we can trust him, right? We can trust him. He has integrity in that sense, exactly like himself. Now, with respect to the patriarchs, Calvin wants to make six points, so really cool, and then, and then, and then bring out um, how this relates to us. God reveals himself, I'm right in the bottom of page one there, God revealed himself to individuals in a way that remains a mystery. Now here, we're talking about patriarchs, so think about Abraham, Abram in that, sense, in that, in that time, um, or the Chaldees, God comes, Abram. He hears, right? We'll get to that in a minute. Moses with the burning bush. Could you imagine, right? There's a bush that spontaneously combusts and doesn't, isn't consumed. Cloud of pillar, fire, right? The way the book of Hebrews starts out. In days of old, diverse ways, diverse times, God spoke to our fathers, right? But now in these last days, he speaks, right, in his son through Holy Scripture. Calvin's point that he's getting at here, there's a mystery here that remains a mystery. We can't get behind it. God speaks and God speaks through cloud, pillar, bush, right? By the way, note note the sacramental nature of God, the way God likes to act, right? There's physical manifestation of the word of God, bush, (laughs) pillar, fire, so on and so forth. We can't get behind that. There's a way in which God speaks, God's address, even as it's clear, understandable, deep mystery there. Unable to be domesticated. It's amazing, awesome stuff. Flip the page over if you will. The truth of God, and all these, we're talking about the patriarchs for now. The truth of God was engraved upon their hearts. Calvin's point is when God speaks and he speaks to us, he seizes us, (laughs) he, he apprehends us. Right, engraved upon their hearts. Um, this, is, this is distinct from, you know, ephemeral insights. We, we might get flitting notions, Eureka is a, ah, and then it's gone. What was I thinking five minutes ago? When God addressed them, God addressed them and they knew it, right? Um, it's a disruptive word of God. I like Paul there, not a patriarch, but you know what I mean, on the Damascus road. Paul gets knocked to the ground <laughs> by the word of God, right? And his response is, Lord, he knows who he's been addressed by. Mm. There's a self-authentication going on there. Mm. They were, the patriarchs, convinced of the truth. In their being apprehended by God and addressed by God, the the, the address of God carries within it efficacy, militancy even, legitimacy, veracity. What they weren't doing is looking around and saying, now how can I, this, and what other grounds might I prove this? Think about our sermon last week, Zechariah, right? How would I know this is true or something like that? And Gabriel says, now you have to be quiet for nine months because <laughs> you didn't believe me. Um, Post-Enlightenment people, are, it's second nature to us that we think we can in any way we want willy-nilly um, prescribe the conditions of God's legitimacy. Bad news, bad news, they weren't doing that. They were seized, apprehended, and convinced of the truth of God. Think about that. Noah, go build an ark in a place that doesn't rain much. And it won't take a... It's not a weekend job. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Do you think he was convinced by the word of God? Right? Abram, leave leave your stuff and follow me to a place that I won't yet reveal to you, to a promise that I will not give you a timetable on. And... um, through the means of that look really implausible to you. You're old and your wife is old, right? And Abraham says, okay. He was convinced, right, convinced. They understood the meaning of God's revelation. We'll get to that a little bit later when we talk about the clarity of scripture, the perspicuity of scripture, big for reformational theology. No, Moses didn't walk away from the burning bush and saying, what does that all mean? That was weird. What does it mean? Oh, well, who knows, right? Could have been last night's dinner. Could have been all kinds of stuff. I'm not sure what it was or what it meant. He, he heard the Lord. He was convinced of the Lord, and he knew what the Lord said, right? There's a clarity, right, a, and a reverberation to word of God and address of God here. It's not mystical, right, um, in the sense that it's subcognate or transcognate, right? It's not mind emptying, it's actually mind sharpening and conviction sharpening. It's that. Um, I have, you know, undercognitive emotionalism here of the radicals because Calvin's talking about the Anabaptists. He calls them fanaticals, 16th century parlance. They're rough people. Um, but what, what he means here is the Word of God the address of God doesn't legitimate itself in its ability, um, in the ability to upend us emotionally, right? That happens, but that's not the legitimacy, right? That's fruit. It's not legitimacy. The word of God isn't grounded on, um, if the, if our, if, if we heard word of God and it made us cry, if we came to the Lord's table, by the way, same thing, God promises to give himself. We don't have to walk away and say, did I feel that maybe hopefully maybe not that's not the ground that's not the ground does that make sense not the ground that's not the way we legitimize anything we legitimize it on the character and the promise of God it's so so important when we think about this you know is God at work in my life we can do that in, a, in my ministry you know you can do that um, and there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a way in which you can do this right, but you wanna be really careful that you're not saying, well, you know, is, is the church growing? <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it's shrinking. I'm a missionary on hard ground. Have I seen tons of fruit? If, if the answer is no, we've sowed in tears and sweat, um, and we haven't seen that fruit, that doesn't mean God's not working. God's working because he promises to. Does it make sense? They knew God to be the origin and author of this revelation, that this was a word by God, from God. All of that they knew in the address of God. They're not looking for other conditions to ground this. That's Calvin's big point. And for us, and in time, this is committed to Holy Scripture, right? So now, now we have Abraham, Noah, the Exodus, the word of the Lord that comes to Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, so on and so forth, committed to Scripture. Now, Calvin's big point here is he says every time Scripture is unleashed in the church, every time Scripture is preached, every time Scripture is read um, faithfully, the Spirit illumines and vivifies Holy Scripture so as to acquaint us with the living God, the living truth, who is the truth of God, Jesus Christ. And that acquaintance yields certainty of him and of his truth as it um, includes us in the truth, right? We're not just observing. We're not, we're, not specta- we're not spectators of the truth. And we're not at distance kind of scratching our chins and trying to deconstruct the truth. Moderns love to do that um, and domesticate the truth, deliberate endlessly about the truth. The truth actually seizes us and includes us in the truth, in the very life and mission of God. It's so, the way scripture, by the way, we participate in the mind of Christ. We're participants in the mind of Christ. What's happening is we're being brought up into the very life of God so that we're sharing in Jesus Christ, knowledge of his father and the communion of the spirit. I'm jumping, I know, but this is what Calvin says. When we, when we use, rightly, scripture in the life of the church, everything we've said here is true for us. And not be true for us and then we can bank on it ministerially right when, when you when you preach in other words when you teach you don't have to spend 45 minutes caveating why you want to use holy scripture carl Barth would say um preachers modern preachers um um preoccupation with scriptural methodology is like clearing your throat before a sermon it's a good thing to do if you want to be clear but if you do it for 30 minutes Right, you you get the point. Um, we can say, "Thus saith the Lord." Yeah. And, and if we can't say that, we can't do ministry.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Then ministry's got to be grounded on your own skill, right? If it's preaching, it's you you, you know you know what that kind of methodology is, right? Hooked, hook, took, look, all these things—they're great, but that's not, that's not what the <laughs> you know that <laughs> you know that <laughs> that's not where the where the efficacy of preaching comes from, not at all. You want to, you want to um, fortify skills, but that's not, that's not the ground of ministry at all. It's not the ground of preaching. It's not the ground of the church's exercise for ministry. I think Calvin's awesome here. This is a quote from my beloved Dr. Father, in fact. He says, right in the middle of page two, Scripture unfailingly accomplishes that for which it is given. What is the end for which Scripture is given? You've got to know that if it's sacramental. Without fail, as often as scripture is read, I would put preached there, heard. The Father will send the promised spirit and the Son will loom before us to seize and save and sustain us. And in this sense, then scripture doesn't fail with respect to its purpose an ever renewed encounter with the living Jesus Christ. That's, that's why scripture is given to us. Okay, I gotta say this. I keep seeing red here. Luther would say, um, scripture's first for the ear, then the eye. First for the ear, then the eye. I think it's really important to, th- to at least think about and get what he means there. Um, if I was a Old Testament Jew, would I be walking around with a card of scrolls? Or where would I, where would I hear the word of God? Temple synagogue, right? Now, if I'm a Christian prior to Gutenberg's printing press in 1450, do I have this? I do not. After 1450, do I have this? Probably not for a long time. Probably not for a long time. Very expensive, right? Very hard to get. One of the points of the Reformation is every local church should have one copy of Scripture, right? Every church should have a copy of Scripture. So the point is, where do you go to... to engage Word of God, the community of Jesus. Now we have the blessing. I've got, I like this one the best. My $2 ESV. Um, got Several copies of scripture in several languages, even, right? What we can tend to do sometimes is say, I have the Bible. Why would I need the church or the community? And then if we're not careful, you know, it becomes the sacrosanct um, exercise of Christian piety as the Devo. Which is usually individual reading of scripture. Awesome, awesome. But it can never undermine the communal hearing of the word of God. The word of God's first for the ear. Then for the eye, and by the way, where do we learn to read scripture? In the church. What is the fruit of our scripture reading? It better come right back into the life and mission of the church or else we become a cold de right? Luther's point's a real good one for, for especially for moderns to have before them. Scriptures for the ear first.
1: Speaking, John, for the 16th, 17th century, 18th century Anglican. That is how you learn Scripture. And Cramner's uh, desire for it was to take seven off of the, the monastic practice, reduce them to two, morning and evening, have them in the village church where, where most of the very England lived, and create habit in the members of that village to go in the morning, hear the Scriptures read, have a copy with you. Yep. So you had your, your morning devotions together and then to finish the day with the scriptures read. So you had your, your evening time of the Bible together um, and thereby to learn it. And you would hear, there's an article from Arthur Canterbury, early 20th century. He said, even then, even now, in the early 20th century, this is how I learned my Bible. Hearing. Um, was, was he was given <clears throat> that, that process of, of hearing before they could actually see. So it's really worked out very concretely in our own great tradition, fascinating. It's fantastic. Yeah. So,
0: so fantastic. And that means engaging scripture is essentially, necessarily, a corporate exercise. Yeah. It's a communal, communal exercise. The Bible's for the church. It's the church's, church's book. Um, point one here, way back, right? A few minutes ago, we talking about the, the mystery. Point one, Calvin would say, is inoperable today in that, in that, Um, we don't have to look around for where God speaks. We know where God speaks. He's promised us he speaks here. Now, what this doesn't mean, as John Wesley used to say, God can speak however he wants. He, he, He uses the illustration, God can speak through a dead dog if he wants. His point is, he's walking through the streets of London. He sees a dog that got hit by a carriage, and he says, life is short and tenuous. I'd better repent and believe the gospel, right? He says, God actually addressed me in that way. It's not that God can't, right? Scripture doesn't handcuff God, but it says that this is where God promises to speak. There's, there's, no, there's no guesswork there. There's no guesswork there. So in that sense, there's, there's not mystery, not diverse times in diverse ways as normative, Calvin says. That's not normative. Um, <clears throat> and I wanna hit on this last point. I'll hit on it again, this last sentence here. I'll hit on it again, but this doesn't deny for Calvin, certainly for the reformational tradition, that the God who visits us in the person of the mediator is known immediately in scripture and not inferred from scripture. This is what I I mean, this is what he means by that. We don't infer God from scripture. Calvin would say you cannot infer God from scripture. God gives himself to us in scripture and there's a big difference. Lots of moderns try to infer God from scripture. This is what they're saying. Scripture is the mediator of God and God doesn't speak and act. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's a real bad development in modern theology. We're We're trying to use text critical tools to get at, to get to God from Scripture, right? Rather than knowing that Scripture actually, God uses Scripture to open up himself to us. There's one mediator. It's not your frontal lobe. It's not creation. It's not even Scripture. Jesus, right? And Jesus reveals scripture to us. That makes sense. I'll keep going with that, but I want to make sure we get that. And then this last point he says, this is an operative today. This last point being point 6 cuz for, for them what happened with patriarchs was committed to scripture. Calvin says we're not in the process of ongoing contemporary inscripturation. The apostolic word, the apostolic witness to the word is singular utterly sufficient for us. And the church is not in, in, the, in the process now of adding to Holy Scripture, but using Holy Scripture as norm, canon of faith and life. And that's because we can do that inoperatively too. We do it all the time with culture. I hear what the word of God says, very antiquated, right? Um, I hear what culture says. Now, how can I norm scripture to culture? What's the norm of scripture, culture? <laughs> no. Calvin would say, no, 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 As soon as you do, boy, the church just starts to die in that sense, right? Church starts to die. All this begs the question then, or for the reformers, this was a big, this was a big 16th century question. The church or, or scripture relative to the church, is the church a creature of Holy Scripture? Is the church the creator of Holy Scripture, right? Big deal for the Reformation, I think much less now you check me on that, you check me on that. But this was, a, this was a big issue in the 16th century. To the mind of the reformers, what they, what they thought they were hearing at least is that Rome was saying, um, we have determined the parameters of Holy Scripture, the parameters of the canonical collection. We have determined that. The, the, without the church, there would be no scripture We say something like that. The reformers said, it's not that we've determined this, It's that we've recognized Holy Scripture. We've recognized Holy Scripture. And something that's amazing. We don't give enough, we don't think about it so much, is there was never an ecumenical conciliar, uh, a council on the canon of Scripture. There were little synods and things like that, and they're amazing, but there was about the Trinity. There was four, five, six times about the incarnation, all kinds of stuff the church, and it took a while, because this long obedience of listening, 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 without all the ways that we can connect, and all of the linguistic issues, and all the political issues, right, between Carthage, and Hippo, and, you know, Antioch, and Damascus, the church was listening, all the false pseudepigraphies, all these, all these writings going around and the church, with one voice says, we hear the word of God, These are are the books of the New Testament, the 27 books we've heard. It's it's stunning. stunning. It's a miracle. Mm -hmm. It's just a miracle. So the issue there is what the church is saying. When when these apostolic letters are written and used in the life of the church, and we see that the the pattern of apostolic preaching, because the pattern of apostolic preaching precedes the, the New Testament, right? What we're seeing is, People are coming to know Jesus Christ, right? People are being transformed and conformed. Um, Think of 1 Corinthians, for instance. Um, You once were these things, (laughs) no longer are you these things. How did that happen? Acquaintance with the word of God, right? Coming to know Jesus Christ and the power of the spirit through the preaching of apostolic witness. And the church says, we've heard the word of God, stunning. So for the reformers, the big issue is the church has recognized, recognized. The church hasn't laid the the criterion, asserted the criterion, and the church isn't trying to um, exercise lordship over Scripture. The church is custodian of Scripture, but the church isn't creator of Scripture. That's a that's a big deal for this for the 16th century. Big deal. What's at play for them um, in this context is whether or not the church is going to be reformed insofar as, and this is a a present issue for us, present issue for evangelicals, um, uh, Christians of all stripe, um, to the extent that we perceive ourselves as the Lord of Scripture, we won't hear Scripture and we won't be conformed to the God of Scripture, and the church cannot be reformed because the church is acting, Cartesian anxiety is what moderns call it, constantly going and trying to prove or qualify or disprove Holy Scripture, caveat Holy Scripture, and what can't happen then is a hearing and a, an obeying and a loving and rejoicing, right? What we might call second naivete. You grow up and get mature and then, then you don't have to um, fight with Holy Scripture, but you say, you, say, you say what Mary says, be it unto me, right? That's the, that's the posture of hearing the word of God. Be, how can this be? <laughs> There's mystery there, right? There's infinite depth there even so be it unto me and christ is formed in her right she receives the word and christ is formed in her um i think by the way luke's gospel is amazing in in lots of senses but in one what you see in mary in chapter one be it unto me according to thy word at the end in luke 23 you see crucify crucify him and it's so stark right all the while jesus saying the word doesn't abide in you the word has no place in you how does it manifest itself crucify crucify right the reformers would say um we can dress that up if we we want to we can try to take the sharp edges off that but there's really only two ultimately responses to god it's the bent knee or the brandish fist sometimes this looks very it, it wears lots of masks right um but but it's that Bonhoeffer famously, he says uh, there's only two responses to, an, to being encountered by God and Jesus Christ. Um, we crucify him, he, we kill him or he kills us to bring us to new life. <laughs> We're crucified with him and raised to new life or we, do, or we do holy violence. And for us, it would look like holy violence in terms of constantly trying to rename, qualify, dismiss, <coughs> relegate, <laughs> marginalize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That would look like an act of violence against God. So that's a big deal. Let me ask you guys this, though. I'm right in the bottom of this page. Um, do, you, do you think or, or, or could you perceive ways in which moderns, modern Christians of all, sort, of all stripes, again, um, I'm most familiar with um, the Western tradition and the evangelical tradition. Do we say we recognize Holy Scripture, but in the back door, try to determine Holy Scripture. Could you see any ways in which we might do that? If you're in an intro to Bible class, it would be pretty common, common stuff to do something like this, right? Um, This is is the the Bible, scripture is the word of God. There's our premise. There's our question mark. How do we know that, Zechariah style? And then proceed to say, well, archeology span teaches us that, science teaches us that, sociology teaches us that, psychology teaches us that. And this sum aggregate total is the canon and the standard by which we can say it's okay for us to believe Holy Scripture. That's bad, it's real bad. It doesn't mean we don't love and engage these. It means th- these do not condition the word of God. These are n- this is not the canon of Holy Scripture. Jesus Christ, God who speaks in Jesus Christ is the Lord of all these things. And then we can, by the way, really engage there. But in so far as we act and perceive as though these are the Lords of Scripture, if it's okay for me to believe in Jesus, right? we got we got trouble and the church is so 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 weakened by that so weakened by that so Mm -hmm. timid by that what happens with the church is that she won't speak anymore right and she she we fall prey to what you know kierkegaard says the difference between a genius and an apostle is um, if if we're not careful i teach apologetics at moody and so you know i talk about this with my students a lot the perception that until I know everything about everything, I can't say anything, right? And thus I'm the smartest person in the room all the time. And I know all the answers. I can't actually say a true word about God. You're, you know what I mean there? That's a, big, that's a big thing for moderns. That's not what apostles, that's not, the, that's, that's not the exercise of apostolic ministry. The apostles don't ground their apostolicity on genius. Take for instance, Paul, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, among other things, right? Fractious, right? We see that right away. Paul says, greeting saints, and then he's, he's into them by the 10th <laughs> t- verse of chapter one. You're fractious, right? I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, you know, I'm of Jesus, so on and so forth. But there's also um, a, a doubting about the legitimacy of Paul's apostolicity in Corinth. Watch what he does. It's stunning. It has everything to do with the theology of scripture. It's chapter two of 1 Corinthians. He says, I came to you not with a display of erudition can paul do that paul might be a genius i'm not he very well might be but he's saying i didn't come that being the ground of my ministry or the criteria for my apostolicity he said i come to you in weakness and trembling and i'm committed right in this intellectual epicenter that is corinth i'm committed to know nothing among you but jesus christ and him crucified Not cardigan Jesus, not philosopher Jesus, not CEO, Jesus and him crucified. What's Paul saying? The the, the exercise of the ministry conforms to the, the cruciformity of Jesus Christ. He comes to us lowly. That's what the ministry has to look like, right? So Paul says, I didn't come doing that, but in the demonstration of the power of the spirit, in the preaching of the word, in the exercise of the apostolic ministry, what happens? The Spirit demonstrates the power of that ministry. How? In that you who were these things, you once were these things, are no longer. And guess what happens? Jesus Christ is known in the power of the Spirit through the exercise of the ministry, and Paul's apostolic office is confirmed. Do you see how different that is And Paul saying, you're doubting me, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come dazzle you with my erudition. I'm going to ground that on myself so that on the basis of my apostolic office, it's okay for you to believe in Jesus. It's not how he does it. It's not how we do it either. It's not the way we handle Holy Scripture. Preach the word, right? Preach the word, Um, the word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Is able to discern and lay sunder, right? Heavy lifting is always God's in the power of the Spirit. That's really I think freeing, right? Really freeing.
1: You can dive back your quick observation and ask you a question that is really important for us in life this. Um so this point of question. there is a fusing of a pneumatology, how the spirit works, with the ecclesiology through the church, whereby bishops in the Episcopal church then are able to say, we now have revelation through the church by the Holy Spirit about uh, new understandings of scripture, primarily because of the identity of homosexuality. Yep. Alright, so that's another authority in scriptural relationship. Now, fast forward to our current day, where my, my quick observation would be the way this is happening in and evangelicalism is you, you have especially uh, mega church pastors, kind of highly influential pastors, primarily, who are even more atomized with what like, you can almost watch greater your atomization happened from mm-hmm. magisterium, <clears throat> not that atomized, to uh, episcopal bishops, atomized, not as atomized, to now basically anybody that's got a significant following and a profound you know, a blog. blogging <laughs> influence who say, you know what? by conscience, yep. I can no longer hold to these previous teachings of conservative evangelicalism. Yep. Um, no harm, no foul, everybody. You don't have to mm-hmm. believe what I'm believing, but I'm going this direction, and we'll see who goes with me. Yep. Um, so I want see kind of this sort of a very simplistic evolution going on. Um, okay, so in light of that, what does that mean for us? Uh, we often use the phrase "father" to describe ourselves as reformed Catholics. Mm-hmm uh or evangelical Catholic or you want to hold the word Catholic. It's very important to us actually. It's very important. Yep. So as Reformed Catholics, how do we how do we then understand the relationship of the authority of the church
0: yeah. with the authority of scripture? Yeah. So I'm glad- oh, yeah. yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because you know as some but would this say is also good.
1: I'm I, I, I can not believe this is just, this as, is just awesome. As so some good.
0: some would uh, say, right? With uh, with Help okay. us
1: think about this. How do we think about this as reformed Catholics who we believe in the authority of the Church? Yeah. We believe in the apostolic office, um, but we do hold as Anglicans uh, to the authority of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. We say that with fervor. Mm-hmm. How does that concretely, in an embodied way, work out? Yeah in so, our lives um,
0: as, as believers. So make sure you get this. It's really important when you're talking about the 16th century reformation. There's a sectarian impulse in Protestantism, for sure. Do I have to argue that or is it obvious? <laughs> 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 when, when Pope John Paul came to America, Bill Clinton, you know, as he's coming out to play Bill Clinton, said something like that. Yeah, we're very religious. We have 33,000 religions in America. John Paul was so impressed, no doubt. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's, it's part of something that happens in evangelicalism, and then particularly in America. Yeah. we spit out novelty and heresy like Chevy's in America. It's something about our, our ideology. The 16th century reformers said, we are reforming the church. It's, it's impossible. You cannot form another church, a parallel church along. Jesus Christ has one body and one head. He's not a two-headed monstrosity, right? He's, he's, we, we, Protestantism can't be a body without a head. There's one church. It's one holy, Catholic, apostolic. And the way that plays itself out, by the way, the oneness of the church, the holiness of the church, the Catholicity of the church is governed by the apostolicity of the church. That last one overarches all of these things, keeps okay, them in church.
1: <laughs>
0: so what Rome said, right, we've got problems. 16th century Rome has problems. So Protestant reformers would say, "Your problem isn't that you're too Catholic. We don't think you're Catholic enough, right?" That's where they are. They're all they're all late medieval Western Christians, right? Um, At Trent and places like that, and things leading up, um, the the pushback was, "If you do this thing, you're going to have endless fracture, and endless fracture." Um, indicates a lack of truth, not the presence of truth. Mm-hmm. Truth and unity go together, right? Mm-hmm. They're not wrong. <laughs> They're not wrong. And so you know, this, you know how this works. You've all been in things like this. You have, a, you have a Bible study, right? Where are we? John chapter three, let's say. And you go around in a Bible study and you say, what does this mean? And you almost play word association games. This, ta- this, this chapter makes me think of a steak fajita burrito. And you know the way we work. Oh, that's wonderful, right? Da-da-da. And after two hours, we all say, we're done. And you walk away and you say, what did we do, right? What did we do to the word of God? Was our, was our confidence in the word of God enhanced or diminished there? We want to be so, so careful. What that doesn't mean is, don't hand this over to rabble; They'll do crazy things with that. We'll get at that later. But what, what it means is, the Bible has to be solidly contextualized within the life of the church and the great tradition. So we love tradition, love it. What we, usually, what we tend to think about in terms of tradition primarily is the way in which the church has handled, exegeted, interpreted, proclaimed Holy Scripture. That's the great tradition. It doesn't run alongside Holy Scripture, it's the way we handle Holy Scripture. And so our Catholicity is not only, along with this, not a Catholicity of mere geography, but a Catholicity that's historical. What has the church believed, right? The Vincentian canon, right? What has the church believed in all times? Um, where, what do you need to just fall on your sword for? And what do you hold according to? Not that. There's different ways you hold things, right? And that, that does, that, that's actually maturity. This is a well-formed opinion. I've got some pretty good conviction on it. Um, it's not at the level of Trinity. I hold it like this. If you hold everything like that, that's the sectarian impulse, right? If everything's that, then the only place you can actually worship is at your living room table with your kids and your wife and you're probably, or your husband, and you're probably suspicious of them too. Right? <laughs> Does that make sense? That's, the sec- that's what happens when you take scripture, right? You, you gotta have it. So you think um, what, what the conciliar movements have been is vehicles for interpreting scripture. Regula fidei, rules of faith, you better read scripture with a Nicene hermeneutic, right? (coughs) Or a Chalcedonian hermeneutic. But then the issue is, do conciliar movements and can conciliar movements, do they too need to be normed by Holy Scripture? Right, are we constantly doing that? It's a a tough tension. So I would say, you know, with us, Gafcon, (laughs) is something like that, right? We wanna keep moving in, in every way we can be ecumenical. It's not, only, it's not like, hey, that's a good idea. It's a, it's a gospel imperative. In every way we can do that, that the church is one so that the world knows and believes <coughs> that the father loves the son and sent the son and truth and unity go together. You know, The, 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 the shape and the form of truth is oneness, right? the efficacy and the, the militancy of oneness is truth. Can't pull those apart. We got to strive for them. It's a given. The good news is we can, we can try. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't constitute the oneness of the church, which means you can't undo it. You can speak a lie against it. You can mishandle it, but you can't undo it. Um, but that the Lord has given it, got to press into the truth in every conceivable way we can. And some of that is, we got problems. So we can say, <laughs> whose problems are, how do we work these out when we have different problems? How do, we, how do we continue to work it out in dialogue? And how do we enrich one another? Now, there's more that can be said, obviously, but we've got to do that. Got to do that. <sighs> Let's do authority of scripture. We'll get, we'll get, we'll, we'll get into that a bit today. The authority of scripture, right? The church recognizes scripture. Scripture um, is the enactment and manifestation of Jesus Christ's sole lordship. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He exercises it through holy scripture and the power of the spirit. So I'm over on the top of, I'm on point four here. The reformers insisted that the church cannot confer authority on scripture. Think about this, this is a really good place to think about um, word of God scripture and word of God son and say, conferred authority is an oxymoron of the first order. If I'm conferring authority on Jesus Christ, who's the real Lord there? (laughs) Me. And this is a provisional conference, right? Do something I don't like, I rescind. The same is true there of Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture says hard things, right? Um, by the way, that's, part of, that's one of the things that's so blessed about the liturgy, the gospel reading, right? It's not all, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. It's, do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword. And this, this is what we say. This is what we don't say. This isn't our liturgy. I don't know about that. Our liturgy is, praise to you, Lord Christ. You just said a word that made me weep and broke my heart. Praise to you. That's a way we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, exercising scripture. We, we, we heard and we said praise to you may it be so <laughs> even if it's a hard word right we don't confer authority on the Lord Jesus Christ or Holy Scripture but we recognize authority so that the church joyfully acknowledges the authority of Scripture whose authority is self authenticating I want to give you a quote from Calvin it's fantastic as are the colors and shapes and, and tastes that we interact with every day Look at this quote I give you from Calvin. It's the second piece there. He says, As to the question, how can we be assured that Scripture is sprung from God unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? Calvin's not doing Scripture against church, right? He's saying Scripture, the, the, the necessary and natural native context of, of Scripture is the church, but the church isn't the Lord of Scripture. He says, It's as if someone asks, whence will we learn? to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter. Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as black and white things due to their color or sweet and bitter things due to their taste. Now you might read that and a lot of moderns might say, how naive, how unbelievably naive is that? Calvin, what he's saying is this, and it's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's drawing parallels here between what it means to worship and obey the word incarnate and obey the word inscripturated. You cannot sit at a distance and deliberate about the word of God, right? And and provide conditions of your own self-selection and come to a knowledge of God. You can only know this in faith and discipleship, in hearing, right? Jesus says to the Pharisees, John seven, if you wanna know if my word is from the father Obey me, <laughs> follow me. You'll know in following, and that's really important. Even when you think about questions that Jesus gets asked, right? Tell us about the kingdom, and then Jesus says, "Well, ten virgins." Like, what? It's because you can't delineate these things. You know, point one, point two, point three. You can you can know them by entering in. You have to enter in to know, right? Knowing is a participatory communal reality. So Calvin says, we know Holy Scripture and we, we discern and recognize that Holy Scripture is a word of God, just like we do salt. How do you discern salt from sugar? If I had a, two, two piles on the table, we wouldn't say, hmm, what do you guys think? How can we tell? We'd say, we'll settle this really quickly. That one's salt, that one's sugar. Sweet on my tongue, that one's savory, right? Calvin says, that's what you do with Holy Scripture. It's actually, it's not, it's not simplistic or naive at all. It's magnificent. And what it assumes throughout is, scripture isn't dead letter, right? Scripture is sacramental reality. Jesus Christ proves himself, right? Jesus Christ, God proves himself in Jesus Christ. Um, God is not impotent, uh, anything but God's effectual, right? God proves himself. So we want to be really careful when we think about that. If I started right now to jump into an apologetic on proving Bishop Stewart's existence right now, you guys would say, really, right? Because he's present and he speaks. I I don't need to do that. What God do we need to prove those ways, except the God who doesn't speak and isn't present and doesn't act? If God lives and speaks and acts, that's why, by the way, prophets and apostles, it's assumed throughout scripture that God is. It's never argued, it's always assumed. There's a no reason for that. Don't need to prove, you don't need to prove that God. God proves us, we don't prove him, right? Calvin's point is that relative to Holy Scripture. Touch, taste, see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. We could say the same thing by way of illustration, at least, about, about the Lord's Supper right if i went up to take communion this week and i said wait wait let uh, just put it in this bag and take it back and take it back to the pew i'm going to pick through it and see if i can find jesus in there and say that's not the way you know <laughs> right you know in the tasting you know praise be to god this is how you know mm-hmm. you can't know that way it's not only that you you won't you can't mm-hmm. you got to know things according to the nature of them right and that's not the way you know holy scripture it's a, it's a misunderstanding of holy scripture So Calvin maintains that there's a conviction whose self-authenticating nature can only and truly be known by entrance into and participation in the reality by tasting and seeing, right? You You know, by tasting and seeing, it's magnificent. That's not, that's not to disengage cognitive realities. It's actually to engage them rightly. Does that make sense to you guys? When the spirit vivifies Holy Scripture and illumines our hearts, to the end that we and Jesus Christ are fused together in the context of Holy Scripture and the worship of the church, then and thereafter, we know that Jesus Christ is the one who's embraced us like we know that sugar is sweet and salt is savory. That's how we know. And, and when you think even about what faith is, there's lots of because ofnesses to faith, right? There's lots of despite to faith. Does that make sense? Abram. Lord, I'll follow you. I'm old and impotent and my wife's barren. I see no way you can come through on this. Even so, right? Even if you slay me, I'll follow you. I'll follow you because I've known you, but I won't leave off doing that because of my my certain questions that I might have. And so moderns tend to think that our questions not only um, uh, diffuse discipleship, but give us good reason to diffuse discipleship and do anything of the sort and our Lord doesn't even, um, our Lord's less concerned about them than we are. Let me give you an example that's unclear. We tend to think that if we have, and this is the way they usually present, if we have cognitive issues, and those are a lot easier to present than I have a cognitive, some cognitive dissonance with this. It's more respectable than saying, I don't find Jesus beautiful or as beautiful as I do this, this way I wanna act sexually. And so this is my presenting issue. This is the issue. <laughs> this is the smoke. This is the fire, right? Our Lord has no trouble saying things like to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? And Peter says, what in the world, right? It doesn't, that doesn't leave him off of discipleship one bit, right? Where would I go? <laughs> you alone have the words of, where would I go? You work out the issues in the course of discipleship. The issues cannot allow you to leave off discipleship. You don't go back home and start navel gazing and chin scratching and come to a conclusion and say, oh, I'll work this out now. I'll be a disciple. You work them out by entering in. Right. The same is true of Holy Scripture. According to Calvin, according to the reformers, Scripture authenticates itself in that through Scripture we're brought to faith in the lord who speaks in scripture and he authenticates himself i think that's so important theologically um, the, the order of our experience might might prompt us to think something different but the order of the theological order which really tells us about our experience tells us something quite different in other words to our experience especially if you're a, an adult convert like i am young adult convert you might think, well, I read a bunch of books, I th- had a bunch of conversations, and then I decided, all my questions got answered, and I decided to follow Jesus. But what really happens, you come, you come to know Jesus, and then in the knowing of Jesus, the apostolic word you heard that brings knowledge of Jesus to you, you say, yes and amen. Be it unto me according to your word. Jesus acts sacramentally through scripture and being acquainted with Jesus, we say yes to that faithful witness about him. It's not vice versa. Our experience might tell us it is, but that's not the case. So, you know, I have students um, that do youth ministry and say, you know, for second graders, I had a student who just talked to me about this the other day, for second graders, they give them all Bibles, sign their names and give them to them and how wonderful, right? And then she was saying, and then for the next week, we tell these kids all the reasons that the Bible's true. Good enough, that's fine, at one level. But I said, do they, do they ever ask? How many of them ask? She said, gosh, they never ask. I said, what if you just proclaimed and used scripture under the conviction that scripture was true? And then if some of those things come up, you address them as they come up. But what if you just use scripture as the word of God? Because those little souls who know Jesus, you know what they're gonna say? Word of God, please. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do that. You actually don't help, you hinder, you hurt there. You don't have to do that. If there's an issue, a singular issue or a specific issue with regard to discipleship, you handle it there. But I don't think we need to nervously, you'd be so nervous with our handling of the word of God. Does that make sense? That's Calvin's point. John, do you have a name
1: for that, for the, really we're talking about epistemology. Yeah.
0: Yes, no, no, you could call it, you could call it um, like cataphetic cataphetic um, epistemology. It's, it's, it's epistemological realism is what it is. And, and in a nutshell, it means this, you know, things according to the nature. You, you go about knowing things determined by the nature of the thing you seek to know. That's what we mean. So for instance, I'm a geologist, she adds a psychologist. I've got a rock formation in my office. I'm looking, I'm looking at it, I've got it under a microscope. Chad comes to me and says, man, you've been working hard. Let me take your rock formation. I'll take it back to my office, I'll put it on the couch and I'll say, tell me about your family of origin and some of the shaping events of your life. Now, and you laugh, but it's not because the approach is wrong in itself, it's because it has no place relative to that. You, do, you can't know a rock formation or a mineral deposit that way. But see, if we, just, if we, if we reverse that and we said, me being the geologist said, Chad, when, when, when your next person that you're gonna to talk to comes in, this microscope goes way up. So I'll just slide them under there and I'll do that. Well, you would offend them to their core, right? I might get to know their bunion or their abscess tooth that way, but not them. I would be objectifying them. The nature the nature of what we seek to know has to determine the way we go about knowing. So when we're talking about the God who lives and speaks and acts and gives himself to us sacramentally in, in in the, in, in the unscriptured word and the tangible touchable words of the sacramental life of the church. We have, to, we have to be apprised of what we're talking about so that we can go about doing that the right way. Same, same idea, right? I wouldn't say, give me the bread in a baggie. I'm gonna take it back to the lab and see if I can find Jesus' DNA in there. That's not the way you go about that. <laughs> and you can, you can never conclude on something like that. You have to know a different way. So there are different ways of knowing relative to what we seek to know.
1: So, Deep Punjab is a way in which this kind of self authentic. This is, yeah. you know, I just, but, but instead we're now in a, a modern, post-modern epistemology that actually takes control over all these things and actually exacts control. And it's those who have the greatest control, the greatest list of attributes, whatever it might be, yeah, yeah. perhaps can actually tell you what this is, yeah. as opposed to the humility of saying, it'll tell you what it is. Um, salt will tell you what salt is. Yes. Male will tell you what male is. The word will tell you what the word is. It will tell you who he is, ultimately. Is that Yeah, it's awesome. It's, 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 so and this, it's, this epistemology <laughs> that Chad's captured, I'm just struck at it humbles us to engage this kind of epistemology. I mean, It doesn't really have much room for the thing other than the thing itself, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's probably it's perpetuity. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a perpetuity element in this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. we are determining the parameters yep. we determine how we measure it yep. and how, yeah, there is that, that hubris that finds itself intermixed in mm-hmm. determining it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so really so
0: you go into the social scientific realm and the realm of say the soft sciences in the university and you know the university is eating itself because there's in, there's a lot of people that are doing naturalism and that has dominated the university mm-hmm. but now there's social constructionism right yep. or there's biological essentialism and psychological essentialism, and they cannot be reconciled. And so what you have is a bunch of professors that can't work with one another and we get polarized like crazy. Um, But the issue is, you know, we can say, and by the way, science, awesome, right? Psychology, awesome. These are forms of creaturely wisdom, but they're beholden to the word of God. They're beholden to the word of God. They're not substitute for the word of God. So what you find, you know, say for instance, you're seeing this right now. Um, I love psychology. I don't like a therapeutic culture. Mm-hmm. When people start to get dicey on, on the gospel, what they usually tend to do is go to psychology as a substitute for theology, <laughs> a substitute for gospel proclamation, right? right. That's, that's a huge problem. That's another gospel, another Lord, another vision of the kingdom. And the, 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 the assumption at least is there are multiple ways to um, import meaning to life. And they're authoritative, but none, none of them are. They only actually are good for us when they're not authoritative. When all authority on, under heaven and earth is, is seen and joyfully acknowledged. And then Bishop, <laughs> this is good for us too, right? It's humbling. So word of God breaks us, heals us. <laughs> breaks us, heals us, right? The way scripture talks, word of God's like a hammer, like a fire, but sweet, builds us up. The Lord takes from us those things that burden us. Even as we think, "If you take this from me, I'll die. My whole life's bound up here." Right? Can I have it? <laughs> Can I kill? <laughs> Can I kill that lizard? Um, because I want to give you everything, and I cannot give it unless you will lay that down. Right? And so, what we do, you know, the the, the quick payout for us is self lordship. Right? I'm in control of my life, as if. Um, But what comes with that is um, deep anxiety. We call it Cartesian anxiety, moderns, right? Cartesian anxiety is I have universal suspicion and doubt about everything. And what I'm actually saying is I think, therefore I am. Or for moderns, I feel, therefore I am. I have to prove and determine everything. And the presenting is, is by way of cynicism and doubt. That's the presenting thing but all you gotta do is flip it over and say, what's the affirmation you're presenting this way, but what's, what's the positive? I am the Lord. I determine, I name, and I do it on my own, on my own conditions. Man, that's a heavy burden to bear. That's the burden of Godness. We're not, we're not meant to bear it. So it's so liberating to say, be an authentic human, rejoice in your finitude, trust in the Lord, and walk, right? You're rid of these things. Um, That's one of the reasons that students are imploding in universities right now. Anxiety's never been higher. Mm -hmm. It's because that's the the operating assumption and condition is self lordship. We don't call it that, but that's what it is. Um, That's an unlivable proposition. Can't actually, we can't, we certainly can't flourish. We can barely live like that. Okay, fine, I'll stop. um, What I want to do, I'll I'll do some touch-up here, but I want to go next time. We're talking about the authority of Scripture. Now I want to move from there to the inspiration of Scripture. Now I really want to talk about the Son, the Spirit, or the Son, Scripture, and the Spirit, right? The Spirit's the divine author of Scripture. By the way, this doesn't override the, the, the true, authentic humanness, right? Scripture, by the way, is fully divine and fully human. It's a parallel with the Incarnation. Boldly human. Um, the, d- the divine author and the divine dynamis, right? So scripture is alive, active, just crackling because of the ongoing ministry of the spirit. You have to have a full pneumatology to have, to have scripture. Modern evangelicals tend to do this or, 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 or can look like this. The Trinity is, you know, father, son, and scripture, right? Father, son, and scripture. So it used to be the spirit, but now that we have the book, we don't need the spirit. If if that's the op- no one says that obviously, but if that's the operating premise, you lose the spirit and scripture, because what that means then is you're right back to Cartesian doubt. And if you if you look at, at you know conservative, all those it's so freighted with baggage I know, but you know what I mean. Um, evangelicalism for the last hundred years, it's the battle for the Bible, right? it's the bible removed from church removed from spirit floating like this and everyone arguing about what it is yeah. that that that's untenable right the bible in the church in the power of the spirit um, the sacrament of jesus christ right that's reformational theology at least so
1: before, before we take a break uh, oh. several minutes um, six minutes or so uh, I'd like to now have you guys do just some immediate. I know you want to ponder this more because we just received a very rich teaching, but I'd like to hear any immediate um, applications now. So, um, work out just off the top of your head, you may want to change oh. it later, but how how does this understanding of the Word of God written with the Word of God incarnate, as part of the path, and the clarity he brought here, how does that apply to the work of your ministry or to? Um, how does the authority of the Word of God over the authority of the Holy Church but deeply, as John's taught, deeply integrated, they're, they're deeply bonded. I mean, he's given us a clear word of authority there. And then in this third area that, that John taught us on, just in his last section here on the sort of epistemology, um, I don't remember the adjective John used um, that Chad asked for a distinction on epistemology. I, oh, it's I, cat-
0: cataphysics. So according to the nature of cataphysics.
1: Okay, great. I call self-authenticating, I remember that. <laughs> That's good. Um, self-authenticating epistemology. So just any quick thoughts, you guys, on, as you're um, ministering in different capacities right now, um, all of this, I maybe mean, not all of the explicit word of God ministry, word ministry, but all of it, implicit word ministry and sometimes explicit word ministry. What are our thoughts on this?
0: Don't you think, Madeline, that, that part of the movement at least um, has been a movement from mission, because we're very afraid of colonization and things like that, and there's reason to, to check ourselves there, to like in intercultural dialogue? We go into the world arguing, you know, go into the world proclaiming and teaching, go into the world arguing mm. and dialoguing about these things. Dialogue's wonderful, but it's not, it's not a supplement for proclamation, right? It's not that. Um, and so I think we, we miss there. We really miss. And then another thing that, that really adds there is um, when, when we get head and body in the life of the church relative to scripture, what we can say is, um, with that discernment, the church is never the head, right? These are non-interchangeable. Jesus is always the head. We're always the body. If we conflate this, we can, we can, we can misunderstand and say something like, when the church speaks, God speaks when the church speaks apostolically, yes, but the church can the church speak like the devil? Has the church spoke like the devil? Yes. So when the church tries to grab lordship, right, she's authoritative. When she tries to get, you know, all authority has been given to me, given to me, says Jesus in the church, and I'll take that. Thank you. Then the the church actually undermines her integrity and, and ability to act in the world. But if we pull these apart, Right then, it's what is what is the pastor going to preach about today? Oh. Right. So I, I ask my class. I give you know in, in their exams. These are forms of the Word of God. Is is the sermon you hear on Sunday your scripturally normed, exegetically sourced sermon? Is that the Word of God? And at first blush, about sixty or seventy percent of them say no. Then we should go golfing, <laughs> right? But we're coming to we're coming to genuflect and hear the word of god right and so there's a whole theology there even in terms of what does it look like to hear the word of god to come hungry and say lord speak i hear you know? <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we, we do apologetics, but not to ground the truth. Apologetics don't ground the truth. They augment and punctuate the truth, but they never do that. But I think you're right. So, you know, we, we have trouble saying like, how could I ever say where we have a clear word of God? And that's often the issue, isn't it? Scripture says more than we want Scripture to say. It's not usually that the problem is if Scripture would just speak here. For us, usually the, the issue is Scripture's Scripture spoken and I don't think I want to say that, right? But it's not humble to say, like, how could I say that? The, the issue is if the Lord says it, how can you not? Yeah. Like, how could you not say that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. utter abandonment that the Word of God incarnate and the sacramental minister in mm-hmm. the written Word of God has all the power attributed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna do things very differently. Mm-hmm. If I have an epistemology that, that the Word of God self-authenticates, self I'm gonna give the Word of God actually with greater abandon and less concern as to how it might be received. Mm-hmm.
0: Don't you think bishop that that plays into what we tend to think in terms of relevancy we're always talking about how how can, yes. the, how can the church be relevant in the world and so i think really what we're doing is we're talking about the creation now fallen and the new creation and the new humanity the church we're saying the end of humanity right and all of her blessing comes by being conformed to this eschatological datum the new humanity risen yes. with jesus but if we're doing this how can we fold the old humanity the new humanity back over on the old humanity and act according to the felt needs of the old humanity then what we're acting that's you know my doctor father would say the grand counter miracle right wine back into water the church the church turns wine back into water um and and when when we do that often um we, we tr- relevance means to to lighten a load to disburden that's what relevant means we tend to think what it means is Let's see what's trending and do that. But if the church does that, the the world's sick to death of itself. Mm -hmm. Like, so are we, right? You don't need more of yourself in that way. Um, I think the church is just where the church is authentically the church. And I think you're seeing that, and you you think about denominations that grow in America and those that are just rich but dying, there's a reason, right? Um, Those that are unabashedly Christian are growing.